So, um, good evening, everyone. Our beloved Sangha. How's the sound, the volume? Is it good? Great. So tonight I am giving the Dharma talk. (laughs) Did you guess that because I was sitting up here? I'm going to talk about generosity. The teaching team actually gave me this topic. They said, you're really good at generosity, so you have to talk about it. And it was interesting because I had never really done a formal study of it. So I actually am so happy that I did. I'm loving generosity. And I want to share what I learned with you from, uh, from the suttas, what the Buddha taught, what some other wonderful teachers taught about generosity, and how important it is in our path, in our path to freedom. It's really important. I loved the way that um, Brian opened up with saying a little bit about who he was. So I want to tell you a little bit about who I am. And uh, actually, some one of my beloved yogis that I'm interviewing with asked me, well, how did you find the path? Who was that? <laughs> and uh, so I want to just tell you, share that very, very, very short bit of, uh, about who I am. So my name is Bonnie, Bonnie Duran, and I live in Seattle, Washington. And um, I met the Dharma, uh, well, first of all, I want to just express my huge gratitude to any of you personally or any of your families if, if they had anything to do with the civil rights movement or the women's movement. Because if you did, you are the reason or your very generous benevolent efforts are the reasons that I went to college. That, uh, you know, I was able to go to college, uh, you know, back in the day when they had something called special admissions for people of color. I think at the time we were called minority students. I'm from a, um, you know, uh, lower working class family background. And, um, you know, my father was very generous. He was a kind of, you know, beloved person, but kind of crazy, as many fathers are. And uh, (laughs) you know how they are. And uh, I love him, love him to death. He was very generous. He held really high, uh, very high aspirations for me. And uh, he couldn't afford to send any of his kids to Catholic school, so what he did was he actually worked for the parish back in the day when you could do that. And all five of his children's ac- children actually got Catholic, high sc- uh, Catholic school educations, which was a really generous thing for him to do, to work really hard to make that happen for his kids. So after... Uh, you know, I got into college through special admissions because of the women's movement and the, and the uh, civil rights movement. So thank you for any of you who had anything to do with that. And uh, after I 
um, you know, was involved with, I worked on campus working for students of color and other people who were first-generation college students. I was a first-generation college student. And after all of my beloved white relative friends were, what do they do after you go to college? You go to Europe, right? <laughs> and I didn't have any money, so I actually got a one-way ticket and went to Europe. And uh, I met these wonder, and I, you know, worked at a, I started working as a chambermaid and a pizza cook and a waitress. And I met all these wonderful expatriates. And what did they say? They said, you have to go to Asia. Go to Asia. It's the promised land. <laughs> so I, um, I got a one-way ticket to go to Asia because <laughs> I didn't really have a lot of money. But so, And they said, when you go to Asia, it's so different culturally. You have to check yourself into a monastery to get used to it. So I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I flew from, uh, I think I flew from Berlin to Kathmandu, probably stopped somewhere in between, and then headed out to Kopan Monastery. I'm sure some of you have been to Kopan Monastery. It's a wonderful Tibetan uh, uh, monastery. And I stayed, so my very first retreat was a month long. And uh, from there, it was like, I thought, wow, they're speaking the truth here. And I just had a really huge resonance with the Dharma. I think I was, uh, I think I was 26 years old at the time. And um, so... From uh, Kopan, I actually headed to Bodh Gaya. And my very first meditation retreat in this tradition was actually in Bodh Gaya, India, where the Buddha became enlightened. And uh, so that's how I found the Dharma. And uh, I came back to the U.S. about a year later and um, just loved the Dharma. All my vacations since that time were... Uh, on retreat. I, it was hard for me to find a sangha because the sangha at the time was, the Asian Buddhist churches, of course, were, were getting established, but the uh, Western Vipassana uh, Theravada tradition that this is the mothership of, the one that, you know, our beloved Joseph helped to develop, was just developing at the time, and they didn't have things like scholarships or diversity programs, and I just couldn't even afford to go on retreat. But, um, so that's how I met the Dharma, that's my story. And because of that, you know, there's a lot of college professors who look at mindfulness and say, wow, that's a cool intervention, let's go hear about that. And I'm kind of the opposite. I'm a person who never thought I would go much, go much very high in higher ed. And because I was meditating a lot, all that gray matter just got thicker and thicker. <laughs> and uh, I just got smarter. I did get smarter. And... Uh, I went to graduate school and my faculty, I went to UC Berkeley, and my faculty invited me to stay for a PhD. It was the biggest, I mean, talk about generosity, what a generous gift that was. It was wonderful. So that is my Dharma story, that's who I am now. And, uh, and I love the Dharma, I think you can tell that. I have a lot of faith. Joseph says sometimes that I take the devotional seat on the team because I just really love the Dharma. And so I want to talk to you tonight about generosity. And uh, 
So generosity, we all know generosity as Donna, right? That's the poly term for generosity. But do you actually know there's another word in there? Donna is actually the gift or the practice of being generous. Donna is the gift that you give when you are being generous. And actually the word for generosity itself is kaja. Is that how you say it, kaja? Huh? Chaga. Oh, chaga, chaga. Good, it's good that we have a poly person here, chaga. (laughs) And uh, chaga also means relinquishment or letting go. And so you can see the importance of dana or generosity, that on the one hand it's the practice of giving, but it also uh, um, supports the mind, supports the positive mental qualities of relinquishment and letting go. And then dana itself refers to the thing that is given. In um, the Abhidhamma, you know, the Abhidhamma has a way to think about all of the mental objects, and generosity is one of those uh, wholesome mental objects. And uh, in the Abhidhamma, the characteristic of generosity is relinquishing. That's what it does, it relinquishes. And the function of it is to dispel greed for things that can be given away. So it works to uproot some of the most core defilements in our minds. And the manifestation, the manifestation of um, kaja, is that how you say it? Chaga. Chaga Chaga is non-attachment. And this is interesting. The manifestation is non-attachment and the achievement of prosperity. I've seen... uh, you know, the, uh, one of my wonderful teachers and friends, uh, Kamala Masters, who, you know, taught many of you in the first half of this retreat, you know, when, uh, when things are getting kind of lean, she always says, we have to be more generous, you know, as a way to pump up the, uh, the um, having material things come in or what we need come in. And then the proximal cause of generosity is an object that can be relinquished. So what can be relinquished in our heart and mind? And this is what Ajahn Suchito says about generosity. He says, or this is what he says about the pillars of the Dharma. In traditional Buddhist training, isolationist view a.k.a. self-view, or maybe Sakaya Ditti, the view of self, and its messages is tackled at the onset of Dhamma practice through the cultivation of giving, dana, morality, sila, and renunciation. These are parami, furtherances that are to be kept going as an ongoing complement to whatever meditation one is doing. The understanding behind parami is that erasing the self-boundaries is the basis of practice, not just a refined insight at the end of the path. Again, I love this sentence. The understanding behind parami is that erasing the self-boundaries is the basis of practice, not just a refined insight at the end of the path. So we cultivate what the end looks like. 
while we're practicing along the way. Um, I have this very short little story about generosity that I love. And every time I read it, I kind of get choked up. So my dear friend and uh, teaching team partner, Jill, has agreed to read it for me. (laughs) Is that okay, John? And I want to thank John for being so kind to set up this beautiful... This is very nice. (laughs) Very generous. Actually, it's really good to appreciate the generosity of others. It's part of the practice is to really delight in your goodness right now. (laughs) Okay, we'll see if I do any better than Bonnie. (laughs) It's a challenge she set me here. So the story is a true story called The Tire Iron and the Tamale by Justin Horner. He says, During this past year, I've had three instances of car trouble, a blowout on a freeway, a bunch of blown fuses, and an out-of-gas situation. They all happened while I was driving other people's cars, which for some reason made it worse on an emotional level. And on a practical level as well, what with the fact that I carry things like a jack and extra fuses in my own car, and I know enough not to park on a steep incline with less than a gallon of fuel. Each time when these things happened, I was disgusted with the way people didn't bother to help. I was stuck on the side of the freeway, hoping my friend's roadside service would show, just watching tow trucks cruise by. The people at the gas stations where I asked for a gas can told me that they couldn't lend them out, quote, for safety reasons, but that I could buy a really crappy one-gallon can with no cap for $15. It was enough to make me say stuff like, this country is going to hell in a handbasket, which I did actually say. <laughs> but you know who came to my rescue all three times? Immigrants. Mexican immigrants. None of them spoke any English. One of those guys stopped to help me with the blowout, even though he had his whole family of four in tow. I was on the side of the road for close to three hours with my friend's big Jeep. I put signs in the window, big signs that said, need a jack, and offered money, nothing. Right as I was about to give up and start hitching, a van pulled over and the guy bounded out. He sized up the situation and called for his daughter, who spoke English. He conveyed through her that he had a jack, but that it was too small for the jeep, so he would need to brace it. Then he got a saw from the van and cut a section out of a big log on the side of the road. We rolled it over, put his jack on top, and we were in business. I started taking the wheel off, and then, if you can believe it, I broke his tire iron. It was one of those collapsible ones, and I wasn't careful, and I snapped the head clean off. Damn. No worries. He ran to the van and handed it to his wife, and she was gone in a flash down the road to buy a new tire iron. She was back in 15 minutes. We finished the job with a little sweat and cussing, because the log started to give, and I was a very happy man. The two of us were filthy and sweaty. His wife produced a large water jug for us to wash our hands in. 
I tried to put a twenty in the man's hand, but he wouldn't take it. So instead I went up to the van and gave it to his wife as quietly as I could. I thanked them up one side and down the other. I asked the little girl where they lived, thinking maybe I'd send them a gift for being so awesome. She said they lived in Mexico. They were in Oregon, so Mummy and Daddy could pick cherries for the next few weeks. Then they were going to pick peaches, then go back home. After I said my goodbyes and started walking back to the jeep, the girl called out and asked if I'd had lunch. When I told her no, she ran up and handed me a tamale. Is that how you say it? Mm -hmm. Okay, we're even. <laughs> this family, undoubtedly poorer than just about everyone else on the stretch of highway, working on a seasonal basis where time is money, took a couple of hours out of their day to help a strange guy on the side of the road while people in tow trucks were just passing him by. But we weren't done yet. I thanked them again and walked back to my car and opened the foil on the tamale. I was starving by this point. What did I find inside? My $20 bill. <laughs> I whirled around and ran to the van and the guy rolled down his window. He saw the $20 in my hand and just started shaking his head no. All I could think to say was, por favor, por favor, por favor, with my hands out. The guy just smiled, <laughs> and with what looked like great concentration, said in English, today you, tomorrow me. Then he rolled up his window and drove away, with his daughter waving to me from the back. I sat in my car, eating the best tamale I've ever had, and I just started to cry. It had been a rough year. Nothing seemed to break my way. This was so out of left field, I just couldn't handle it. In the several months since then, I've changed a couple of tires, given a few rides to gas stations, and once drove 50 miles out of my way to get a girl to an airport. I won't accept money, but every time I'm able to help, I feel as if I'm putting something in the bank. <laughs> so generosity it makes your heart tender doesn't it <laughs> so uh, where does generosity show up on the lists uh, there's this wonderful I found this wonderful um website that has uh, all of the Nikayas in it and they have commentaries on all of the different suttas in the Nikayas and I was looking for um, looking for suttas on generosity and dana and every single Nikaya has so many of them I was going to count them but I thought wow there's just too many to do it in a small amount of time but I did find uh, places where generosity showed up, and I just wanted to uh, share some of those with you. Of course, it's one of the ten perfections, the ten paramis, right? Actually, giving is the first parami. And uh, I've heard some teachers say that this is a progression and that giving um, creates the conditions for the other paramis to also be developed and to be rolled out. Um, it's on the list of the ten wholesome actions. 
that uh, we can, that we're supposed to cultivate. It's the first one on that one as well. Giving, virtue, mental cultivation, humility, service, sharing merit, rejoicing in the merit of others, listening to the Dharma, teaching the Dharma, straightening out one's views. We're doing all of that here, so I'm really rejoicing in all of what your guys are doing. You guys are really working hard here. You've, uh, you know, put a lot of energy into being here. It's incredibly meritorious what you're doing. And I'm just rejoicing in all of the benefit for yourselves and for the world. I love this one, the four bases of social harmony. In the Dingma Nikaya, the Buddha talks about how do we create Sangha or a society that uh, can get along. And he said there, there are four bases of that. Giving is the very first one. The second is kind speech. The third is service. And this fourth one, I really love this, being equitable. Being equitable. And then on another list, there's the 10 virtues of a ruler. I was thinking we should all have, we should all have uh, a little clip, you know, clip chart with these 10 things as we're reviewing the people running for president right now. (laughs) Boy, they would so, it would be pretty interesting. For those of you not in the U.S., for our relatives from Canada and uh, other continents, you know, it, it seems like in the U.S., electing someone to, pr- to be president is, starts like a few years even before the election. And, you know, that position has an impact on the whole world. So, so these are the ten virtues of a, of a ruler. Giving, generosity is the first one. Sila or ethics is the second one. Altruism, honesty, kindness, self-control, non-anger, non-violence, patience, and uprightness. I would vote for that person. (laughs) And then four virtues of a householder. Honesty, self-discipline, forbearance, and giving. So did you know that without generosity, we can't make any spiritual progress? Uh, One of the suttas talks about stinginess and says that meditators, that's you, that's all of us meditators, these are, there are these five forms of stinginess. Stinginess as to one's lodgings, as to one's family, as to one's gains or possessions as to one's status and stinginess as to sharing the Dharma. And that with that stinginess, if you have those kinds of stinginess, you can't get into the jhanas. You can't get into the first jhana, to the second jhana, to the third jhana. And you can't actually achieve stream entry, uh, once returner, non-returner, or arhatship. So uh, generosity is a prerequisite or lack of stinginess is a prerequisite for spiritual progress. 
So what kind of donations, what kind of gifts are there good to give? In the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha talks about five great gifts that you can give to, to yourself and to, um, to the world. The five great gifts which have been held in high esteem by noble-minded people, beings from ancient times are the meticulous observance of the five precepts. It's the, one of the biggest gifts that we can give. And that's the gift of safety. Can you imagine if, you know, your community or your family or even yourself, if you knew that, you know, regardless of what happened, that you were a safe person to be around? That's a huge gift. Freedom from fear is a condition for the the perfection of morality. Another gift that we can offer is, and you know, one of the, uh, the biggest, you know, as we know, as we're practicing the Dharma, things will be uh, kind of relevant or up for us at any time. Right now, what's really up for me, both in my day job, which I think is absolutely a Dharma job, it's enduring, in, ending suffering in a particular population in the U.S., Uh, What's really up for me is how the Buddha taught that speculative, just about speculative thought and about speculation about how this might be related to that. And, you know, there's that wonderful story about the Buddha walking with his, uh, his yogis, his meditators, just like you, like you were walking in the forest with the Buddha. And he would say to you, what is more abundant meditators, yogis, the trees in this forest, and then he, you know, bent down and picked up a, a handful of leaves. And he said, is it the leaves in this forest or the leaves in my hand? And you would all say to him, of course, blessed one, it is the leaves in your hand. And he would say, my knowledge is like the leaves in this forest. But what I teach are the leaves in this hand because this is what you need to know to end suffering. And I just love that, that any speculative thought or anything that is superfluous to what is happening right now is not what he wants to talk about or not what he taught. And I think that that is uh, good advice for us as we sit here as well. What is going to be useful to end our suffering right now? What is the useful practice for us right here? So uh, another offering that can be very helpful as we practice right now is offering forgiveness. That's a a form of generosity. Uh, Kamala was walking me through what she thought I should talk about, and she said, talk about giving way. Giving way. If someone is walking in your in your walking meditation spot or someone rushes to get in line before you or 
someone takes a little bit too much of the jam that you want, so there's not that much left. Whatever it is. You know, when our mindfulness is so strong, it blows everything up. And we can just see how much reactivity there is in the mind. How much roots of delusion there is in the mind. And this is an an opportunity to be generous, to offer forgiveness to ourselves for having that much karma, that much volitional action that uh, triggers, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion, and it's many manifestations. And also forgiveness to people who were less thoughtful than maybe we would have liked them to be in the moment. So giving way. It's a, it's a gift to ourselves as well as to our Sangha. And then, so that would be, I think, a gift of generosity based on compassion. It's based on wanting to, or cultivating this sense of we rather than I that Ajahn Suchito talks about. And um, that is uh, one motivation for practicing generosity, to cultivate uh, compassion as a uh, karmic, uh, volitional pattern in our heart-mind, to have really strong compassion in there, that that becomes you know, what maybe one of our habit patterns is of heart and mind. To be able to open to suffering and have it be the cause of compassion to arise rather than it be regret or self-recrimination or anger at others. To open to suffering and have compassion arise in response to that. So uh, I wanted to tell my own story about Uh, Many of the teachers talk about metadonna cultures. I'm not exactly sure that the United States is a metadonna culture. (laughs) I kind of know that it's not a metadonna culture. Or I shouldn't say that because the United States is not just one thing. There's a lot of different cultures in the United States. And um, I think the predominant uh, economic culture is not a metadonna culture at all. But I did recently actually travel and have a uh, short, like two and a half or three week visit to where Jill is from, to Ataroa, is what the Maoris call New Zealand, Ataroa. Is that how you say it? (laughs) (laughs) Ataroa. Ataroa? Ataroa. Ataroa. Okay. She is so smart. <laughs> so, um, so it was so wonderful. I got invited by this uh, woman that we all love, Linda Tahuliwai Smith, who was like the queen of indigenous research methodology. And, and she invited me to come and give a plenary talk. And I didn't realize to them this was a very high uh, offering to them. And I didn't realize it, but it was a... You know, I needed to realize it as soon as I got there what it meant that they asked me to do this. 
So I, you know, I was very busy, but I knew I was going to spend uh, three weeks in New Zealand. And um, I actually brought my boyfriend. You know, my boyfriend hasn't really traveled at all. He's a Japanese-American um, Pure Land Buddhist. And uh, he hasn't, I think he's only actually been in Canada as far as being, uh, leaving the country. So, you know, we just decided, and I didn't really tell anybody that he was coming with me. So I show up in New Zealand and I get there and, you know, there's uh, Maori, my Maori relatives, these wonderfully generous people waiting for me at the airport. And they said, oh, who is this? <laughs> and I said, well, this is Stan Kondo, my boyfriend. And they said, and I said, you know, I know that, you know, you have arranged all of this wonderful uh, places for me to go and, you know, people to see and places to stay. And I just want you to know I will cover every amount of additional costs associated with Stan coming with me. And they didn't say anything. And I'll just tell you, you know, we were there together for two and a half weeks and he did not spend a penny. He did not spend a penny. And it was so effortless generosity. The first, uh, the first uh, I think, week I was there, they sent me down to actually, uh, to, um, what is the name of it? They sent, they sent me down to um, New Plymouth. New Plymouth? Yes. <laughs> And uh, because I do uh, a fair amount of uh, work on a refuge for women and children in response or as victims of violence, I went and stayed at a Maori refuge for women and children against violence. It was Tutama Wahini O Taranaki. <laughs> and Taranaki is this incredibly beautiful, big, huge mountain. And I think it's also the name of the state, Tar Taranaki, isn't it? Yes, really a beautiful place. And, you know, they had all of these, just the metadonna culture of the Maori was so obvious. You know, it, none of it was, uh, you know, none of the work that they were doing with any of the families was punitive at all. It was all about cultural restoration and about reclaiming people's humanity. It was really so beautiful. Uh, you know, when, while I was there, you know, I stayed at one of the um, houses of one of the employees and she would get up every morning and make breakfast for us and, you know, drive us over to the agency and um, they would have lunch for us and everybody would get together. And I gave, you know, a number of talks at this agency, one for uh, every month they would have a, a master class where all of their um, you know, or other organizations that provided services or had any interest in reclaiming safety, you know, a refuge against violence would come together. And um, it was so interesting. So I did a group for the staff. I did a, you know, a whole afternoon for the staff. I did a, a, a talk for also 
uh, the men, you know, the men would come in, and, and, you know, mostly it was men as perpetrators. And you know what they were most interested in? You know, I, I have a lot that I could talk about research or indigenous methods, and you know the one thing, when it was for them, and it, when it was for the medicine for the people, you know they, what they wanted me to talk about? Mindfulness. You know. They wanted me to talk about mindfulness. That was the best medicine I had to offer. And they knew that. It was really beautiful. So, there are other reasons why we practice generosity. And the Buddha taught that the highest reason, the most noble reason to actually practice generosity is not for its... um, You know, it's not even for what it does to relieve suffering of others. It's for the adornment of our own minds, for the purification of our own minds, for the cultivation of positive states in our own mind. Here is one um, small quote in the Majjhima Nikaya. It points to the sequence of graduated discourse. You know, the Buddha uh, in, in Asian countries, when they teach the Dharma, they always start out with generosity. They start out with generosity. Uh, they teach the children generosity. The children are the ones that give the um, offerings of food to the monks as they walk around and, um, you know, get offerings for meals. And uh, so they teach... That's part of the gradual discourse. They teach first generosity and then they teach ethics. They teach uh, ethical conduct. And this is what the Majjhima Nikaya. At that time, the Buddha gave a gradual instruction to the housekeeper Upali on giving, on morality, on freedom, on finding fault with carelessness, no longer being engrossed with central pleasures and on the merits of renunciation. Upali's mind was ready, supple, free from hindrances, exuberant, and dedicated. And so the Buddha proclaimed the teachings of all the Buddhas, the Four Noble Truths. That is, suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path to the end of suffering. So, you know, as Ajahn Suchito said in that earlier quote, um, it's as if, well, what happens is that training in generosity and ethics prepares our mind for deeper understanding. Uh, I love the term uh, pliability and malleability. You know, the Buddha understood neuroplasticity 2,600 years ago. You know, Western science understood it, I think, with the fMRI which probably came out, what, 20 or 30 years ago. But the Buddha talked about the pliability of the brain, or the mind, the mind-heart, and how you needed to get it ready for deeper understanding and deeper deeper wisdom. So the the Buddha said that the practice of giving will aid us in uh, efforts to purify the mind. First, 
It uh, reduces our attachment to objects. And actually, I love this part. What it does, and generosity is actually an unworldly pleasant feeling because it's really kind of counterintuitive. What we think based on our you know, economic culture of this country and of many co- countries, what do we think is going to give us pleasure? And, you know, we can see this tendency sitting in deep meditation. We see this tendency to think that becoming this or becoming that will bring us happiness or accumulating this or accumulating that will bring us happiness. I have this... Um, I have this habit in my mind that if I was only married, I would be happy. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes I just will say things that kind of get at one of my, some of my very deep-seated uh, defilements or, you know, delusions. And, you know, one of the things that I say automatically without even realizing it is, gosh, I wish I was married. And I've been married. <laughs> <laughs> It has, you know, it has its moments for sure. <laughs> but it is a worldly pleasure and we anticipate. Are you laughing because you're thinking about your own marriages? <laughs> and I'm, I don't have anything against marriage, I don't. And I'm so happy that our queer LGBTQ brothers and sisters and other gendered people can get married now. That makes me so happy. Anyway, I just wanted to say that. And anyway, um, so that's one thing that generosity does. And I think that that's one thing that it's really important for us to notice when we're on the cushion. Uh, one of the things that we should notice in Vedana, we've talk, been talking a lot about Vedana, the second foundation of mindfulness is knowing when something is pleasant, knowing when something is unpleasant, and knowing when it's neither pleasant or unpleasant. And it's really important to also know when that feeling is caused by worldly stuff and by unworldly stuff, by... Uh, meditative pleasure or by the pleasures of uh, you know and we can have pleasure by rejoicing in the generosity and rejoicing in the good qualities of others it's counterintuitive that there is so much satisfaction if we turn our mind to those things and cultivate that I'm telling you when when yogis come in to see me I'm really happy (laughs) You know, just the amount of work that they're doing and just opening to all of, you know, the purification part, opening and letting go of all of these, you know, the conditions of being human, the trauma of being human, to open to that in a really directed way and to do that cultivation of the positive mental qualities. It just makes me so happy and I'm so grateful that you're all doing it. It really is a source of happiness for me. So when you come in and I'm like your cheerleader, please know it's really authentic. I'm really happy. So that's one thing too with uh, generosity. It uh, reminds us that we are, um, that there are other 
uh, ways to find happiness in life than just accumulation and, uh, you know, becoming, becoming this and that. You know, we have these thoughts that really pain us. I, I wish I was more of a success in this, or I wish I would be able to accomplish that. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've seen it in my own mind. You know, when good things happen to our friends, it's like it's, it actually hurts us that something good is happening when, you know, we see jealousy in our mind or craving for becoming this and that. And it's never enough, is it? Can we ever become enough? You know, I've got a great job and I get paid a fair amount of money and it's very rewarding, but it's still not enough. I want more. (laughs) But I know that the, you know, anything that I get from that is probably never going to be enough. So seeing the the beauty and the satisfaction and non-worldly pleasure is really an important thing to see as we, as we um, practice an intensive retreat. The second um, part of adorning the mind that's really productive to practice generosity in intensive practice, they say is that if you um, have really wholesome volition, it actually leads to happy rebirth. And in that sense, it probably leads to meeting your teacher and your sangha in your next life. Isn't that what, I don't know how many of you want that. I really, really want that. I want to meet my teacher and my sangha in my next life. And then third, it, uh, the Buddha taught that these practices, these so-called preliminary practices, which really aren't preliminary at all, they're creating the conditions for concentration and wisdom to to go well when we're doing intensive practice. They're not preliminary. They are creating the conditions. They are mirroring what the enlightened mind looks like. The enlightened mind is, you know, there is no separation of self and other. So practicing generosity helps us let go and it creates... It cultivates a mind of non-clinging. It contributes to, it's an it's a important part of right understanding, the first path factor, the wisdom path factor, to understand the teachings of the law of karma and karma as volition act, volitional activity. Karma of, you know, what are the habit patterns in our heart and mind? And to... Uh, cultivate the uh, three beautiful roots of non-attachment or generosity, non-aversion or kindness, and understanding or wisdom. And practicing generosity uh, cultivates those three important mind states. And then I want to talk a little bit about uh, practicing generosity with ourselves. When we think about generosity, do we think about giving to others? Practicing the quality of generosity, you know, applies to ourselves as well. How can we practice generosity in intensive practice? What would that look like for all of us? Let's do a reflection. So let's do a a little meditative reflection.
Reflect on whether you aspire to develop generosity not only towards others, but internally as well. Imagine what you might give to a friend burdened with painful feelings, such as jealousy, anger, despair, or craving. What you might offer to help them be free of these states. How you might offer them support. Reflect on how difficult it is for you to let such burdens go, even though you know holding on to them causes pain. What can you give to yourself in such situations? I've heard of people just dealing with, you know, deeply ingrained mental and heart habit patterns that reflect, you know, patriarchy and they reflect internalized shame and they reflect just greed, hatred and delusion. And, you know, sometimes they're very sticky. We cling to them. We, we believe them. We believe that they're us. And if, you know, your child or your friend next to you was having that, what would be your response to them? Right now, you'd probably grab them and hug them and just, you know, get that oxytocin going, right? Give them a nice rub, a nice hug. And, you know, I say that we should all be doing that for ourselves. We deserve that too. We absolutely deserve that and we need that. Let's give ourselves some hugs and some love. So um, I had a nice thing happen right before I came to do this talk. I've been working in uh, tribal communities my whole life. I work pretty much exclusively in tribal communities. And I guess it was uh, today at 5.28, so it was two hours before I got here, I guess, I got this email from this very, very old friend of mine who actually gave me a lesson in generosity. His name is Richard Zephier. And he was, uh, he was the service unit director of the Santa Fe Indian Health Service. He ran the medical and mental health and behavioral health services for a big part of New Mexico and Arizona for uh, actually probably the, the Pueblo tribes in that area. And he left Indian Health Service because talk about karma, that institution has its own interesting karma to it. Institutions have karma too. They have history and karma. And he left there to actually take the job as the tribal administrator for the entire Pine Ridge Reservation. And I don't know if you guys know Pine Ridge. It's a reservation in South Dakota. And it has the dubious distinction of having the three poorest counties in the whole United States there. The poorest counties in the United States. So anyway, I got this email from Richard Zephyr at uh, 528, and he wrote, first there's a phone number, and he said, this should reach me, the other one was messed up, sorry. He had emailed me like a month ago, said, I need to talk to you right now, and we just never connected. And he said, you and I have agreed to write a grant for Richard Moosecamp. 
And Richard Moosecamp is one of the medicine men on the Pine Ridge Reservations. He said, he will be calling you this week, I hope, Dr. Zafir. And I don't know, he likes to be called doctor, I guess. <laughs> but I was so happy when I got this. It was like, wow, what a gift. I felt like I was getting a huge gift. Like this is the poorest place in the United States. This is where anything that you know is going to be of the most help. And I was offered this, like, we need you here. We want you to come here. And uh, I wrote back and said, oh, that makes me so happy. I would love to work with you. Just one line. And he wrote back, Bonnie you have been doing ceremony with us in one blee and we all love you so don't stay away dang dr z <laughs> and it was such it was just such a gift and he taught me something about generosity he talked you know we were at a uh, it was a native gathering like a dinner or something and there's all of these people who have these fancy schmancy degrees and try to be of help, right? And he said, what we need to do is write a book, an edited book. He said, I'm going to be the editor, and the, the title of the book is going to be Shot Off My White Horse. Right? Because that's what happens sometimes when we try to be generous and we try to be of help, particularly when we feel like it's us doing it, and particularly when we want to see a particular outcome out there. It can actually, it can actually be the cause of some suffering. And lateral oppression is absolutely true as well. So that's all I wanted to say about generosity, and I just want to water my seeds of appreciation for all of you. It's not an easy thing that you're doing, and it's a very beautiful thing. It makes me happy just to even look at you. It does. You guys are just awesome. <laughs> so let's just sit for a minute. May we dedicate our merit to all of our loved ones that need our merit. May the positive energies of our practice be dedicated to the happiness and awakening and freedom of all of our relations in all directions. May they benefit by our practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.